Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I'm reading today from John chapter 5, and I'm going to begin at verse 19. The heading on this in the ESV is the authority of the Son, so keep that in mind as we read. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life.
so far, as we have been studying the book of Revelation, I have rather studiously avoided getting into a lot of terminology. I can't avoid it forever, and this morning we're going to have to start talking a little bit of eschatological terminology. There, there was the first term, eschatological. Eschaton is the Greek word that means last things. Eschatos, eschaton. Eschatology is the study of last things. And whenever you're studying prophecy, eschatology, book of Revelation in particular, it's real easy to get bogged down in eschatological terminology. For instance, as we talked about the catching away of the church, we didn't talk about pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib. And and if I did, and I can, I would just bore you all stupid with all the terminological cleverness that I could spew out. But last week, we talked about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And because the marriage supper of the Lamb occurs chronologically in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation before the return of Christ, and because the saints that are accompanying Christ are wearing the clothing that they received at the marriage supper of the Lamb, then it's clear that John is writing sequential information. In other words, the marriage supper of the Lamb must precede the return of Christ with his saints, John not only wrote it in that sequence, but he put details in like the clothing that the saints are wearing to demonstrate that it needs to be sequential. Okay, so what's your point, Jim? By recognizing that sequence, it helps to eliminate a couple of eschatological ideas that are semi common within the church world. One of them is the idea that the church goes through the entire seven-year day of the Lord, tribulation the great, that the church is here for all of it. People will tell you that the church then is preserved the same way that God preserved Noah on the ark. He's going to preserve the church in the world as he pours out his wrath. That's impossible if the return of Christ is accompanied by the saints who have already been to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Does that make sense? Yes. Sequentially, it's impossible not to say that the church must be gone sometime before the return of Christ because they've gone to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I argue that they are gone very early in that seven-year sequence. But people argue about exactly when they're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we ever be with the Lord. But it's clear that we have to be before the end of the seven years because of where the marriage supper of the Lamb is, and we get our clothing at the marriage supper of the Lamb in which we are returning. Does that all make sense? Yes. Okay, good. We've eliminated one errant eschatological idea. Now, let's eliminate another one. There are some folk who, when talking about the catching away of the church, 
make a lot of the word parousia, which is the Greek word that means the appearance. That's the way that it is typically translated. The appearance of Christ, the parousia of Christ. That word, that Greek word parousia, is sometimes used when a conquering king would return to the city that he ruled over. The residents of the city would go out to meet him and then accompany him as he returned into the city. So people would go out, meet their king, come back with him. Some people have used that idea when describing the catching away of the church. In other words, they say we go up to meet the Lord in the air, but then we do some kind of great cosmic U-turn where we just all turn around collectively and come back to the planet with him. The marriage supper of the Lamb eliminates that idea because we go up and then there's a marriage supper that has to take some amount of time and then we return wearing the clothing that we received at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Therefore, the idea that the parousia is simply the church rising in the air, meeting their king, turn around and coming back, that idea is eliminated by what John wrote. Does that make sense? Yes. All I'm trying to do is demonstrate that the more you look into the details of the book of Revelation, the more you look into the details of the entire Bible, the Bible tells one story. Now, when we get into chapter 20, we're going to have to also talk about the millennium. And we're going to talk about pre-millennial and post-millennial and amillennial and pan-millennial. And we'll get into all of that. But let me say just as clearly and precisely as I possibly can, the Bible does not teach various different theories, various different ideas, various different timings. There's no way that the Bible teaches pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, a-trib, pan-trib. There's no way that the Bible teaches all of that. It teaches one thing, which is that the church gets caught away before the wrath of God happens. That should bring you a great deal of comfort to know that God is going to preserve his own church. That's why Paul could say that we are not appointed to wrath and that we are going to be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And then Paul says, comfort one another with these words. So it's meant to be very comforting. The idea that we're going to be here and go through the wrath of God, I don't find much comfort in. There, that wraps up. What I meant to get to last week that we just didn't have time to get to, now we can get to the new stuff. I like the providential timing of God. Anybody else like the providential timing of God, or am I on my own here? Providentially, it is today, December 4th, 2022, so we're starting to get into that season of the year where everybody, like it or not, is going to have to kind of recognize that Jesus did come to the planet and that his birth date, although not December 25th, is still going to be recognized by the world at large. And the place where people are going to go, church services, even Linus talking to the Peanuts gang, they all go to the book of Luke. So we're going to start this morning in the book of Luke. Keep your finger in Revelation 19. But turn for just a moment to Luke 1, the very first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, because Luke tells us 
exactly what we're reading right now in Revelation 19. And the way Luke records it, it is the angel Gabriel who is telling Mary exactly what to expect and what God is going to do through the child that is going to be born to her. I'm going to start reading at verse 26, and I'm going to try to read it in my best Linus voice so that you can all feel like it. Never mind. In the sixth month, that's in the sixth month of the gestation of John the Baptist. You read about that earlier in the chapter. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what this statement might mean, what this salutation might mean. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That's the word grace. You have found grace with God. You will notice that the angel does not say, for any of our Catholic friends and listeners out there, it does not say, because you yourself are immaculate, that's why God has favored you. Instead, Mary found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son And you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God, notice this, and the Lord God, pay attention, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The angel just said three very important things. In the Old Testament, King David wanted to build a house, wanted to build a tabernacle for God, wanted to build a temple where the Ark of the Covenant could reside. The Ark of the Covenant was still residing in a tent, the same way it originally had been during the 40-year wilderness as the Israelites were coming out of Egypt. David saw an inequity in that. And he said, I live in this fine house of cedar, and the ark of God still dwells in a tent. So he wanted to build a house for God. Unfortunately, his prophet said to him, sure, yeah, go do that. That's a good idea. Then God woke the prophet up in the night and said, did I ever say, build me a house? Did I ever tell you to do that? So he had to go back and tell David, oh, I got that one completely wrong. I heard from God, and here's what God has said to you. God said, I'm going to build you a house. And that word is dynasty. I'm going to build you a kingly dynasty. And part of that promise was your descendant is going to rule over the collective 12 tribes of Israel on the throne of David Forever. It's a forever promise. We know it is the Davidic covenant. 
Okay, so Jesus is born, born to a virgin. But you'll notice that early on, she is a virgin who is a descendant of David. That's really important. That means that Christ is coming from the bloodline of King David. And then the promise from the angel Gabriel, if he says that through Christ, an Old Testament promise and covenant is going to be satisfied and fulfilled, he would know what he's talking about. I don't care what your particular Israelology is. I don't care what your particular concept is of how God is going to deal with Israel in the future. What we know for certain is that the angel says the son that is going to be born to Mary is the son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. That's the satisfaction, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. In other words, everything that was promised to King David as part of his lineage and dynasty is being satisfied in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is going to rule on David's throne, and just so there's no confusion... For all the folks out there who say, well, the church is now Israel. The church is Israel in some spiritual way. That idea is completely demolished by what Gabriel just says. Because he defines the throne of his father David as, and he will reign, he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. And there's no way you can prove that the church is the house of Jacob. The house of Jacob is the house of of Israel, the collective 12 tribes. That language permeates the Bible, permeates the Old Testament, and never once in the Old Testament or the New Testament does the phrase house of Jacob ever mean church. Have I lost anybody yet? I know I got up here on a lazy Sunday morning and just got really technical right away. I understand that. But it's necessary for you to understand that this was the promise as soon as Jesus was conceived, that he is the son of God who's going to rule over the house of Jacob forever, and he's going to have a kingdom, and his kingdom is going to last forever. Okay, so when he was on the planet for his 33 years of life, did he establish a kingdom? No. No, no, he didn't. In fact, what he did the first time he was here on the planet was that he made himself a sacrifice for sin. He died the first time to accomplish the redemption of all God's people. Having accomplished that, he did exactly what he said he was going to do and what all of the marriage language of the New Testament says he was going to do. He went to his father's house to prepare a place for us to live with him so that we could be with him and see him in his glory. And then he's returning for his bride. And we're going to see that language in Revelation 21. So the more you know all of this background, all this Old Testament history, the more you know the New Testament promises and satisfactions, the more you understand what is happening in Revelation 19. This is all still introduction. Am I boring you yet? No. Okay, good. He will reign over the house of Jacob. That's the collective 12 tribes of Israel. He will reign over them forever. Did they go on and rebel against him, reject him, and kill him? Yes. Yes. Was he reigning over them? 
No. Does he have to? Yes. Yes. That's what the word of God says. And he is the satisfaction of the Davidic covenant and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Turn to Revelation 19 because Revelation 19 is describing the return of Christ for the specific purpose of establishing a kingdom. And what kingdom is he establishing? The very kingdom that has been promised to him ever since the Davidic covenant way back in the Old Testament. So the coming of Christ is so much more than baby in a manger. It is so much more than three shepherds and three wise men. It is so much more than the manger scene up the street from me, which has shepherds in it and wise men, even though according to the Bible, the wise men were not at the manger. Get that right. But they decided, my neighbors decided, they would also add Santa Claus and a little drummer boy. And so they're in the manger too right now, apparently. But it's just, it's so much more. And the dumbing down of the story we just read out of Luke the dumbing down of that story to turn it into presents and jolly fat man and tinsel and lights and caroling all collectively has eliminated the reality that the coming of Christ as a baby in a manger is the satisfaction of something that was promised all the way back at David and that promise to that baby by that angel from God himself has yet to come to its fruition which means it's coming. And how do I know the kingdom is coming? Because the baby came. The baby actually did arrive. The baby actually did grow up. The baby actually did do the miracles. And then he died as an atonement for sin, exactly like all the Old Testament prophets said he was going to do. And those exact same prophets say he's coming back to establish a kingdom which will never end. And he's going to sit on David's throne, ruling from Jerusalem over the collective 12 tribes of Israel. And that's going to happen because the first part of it all happened. Let's start reading in Revelation 19. We're going to read from verse 7 just to review the marriage supper of the Lamb again because verse 11 starts with, and I saw, and I saw. I'm going to stress this one more time. I've been stressing it for weeks. John's use of the Greek word kai, K-A-I in English letters, it is translated and. Occasionally it will be translated and then. And so this is a demonstration that John is actually laying out a sequence. This, then this, then this, after these things, after these things, and this happened, and then that happened. And that's very important to remember when we get to chapter 20. And we will get into those details when we get to chapter 20. Just hang on to the fact that chapter 19, verse 11 starts, and... Verse 12, and. Verse 13, and. Verse 14, and. Verse 15, and. Verse 16, and. Verse 17, and. Verse 19, and. Verse 20, and. Verse 21, and. Chapter 20, verse 1, and. Chapter 20, verse 2, and. 
John is doing this on purpose. Kai, 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 and, and, and. Then it's this, then it's this, then it's this. That is why here in this church we believe what we believe because of the way it is structured in the book of Revelation. All right, let's read. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Who is the only personage in all of human history who can be described as actually being faithful and true and righteous? Jesus. It has to be Christ. It can't be anybody else. We can't say it's Jeff. We can't say it's Steve the sequel. We would have to say the only person in all of human history who is satisfying the name faithful and satisfying the name true, he's the one who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So clearly this is a reference to Christ who is returning on a white horse, leading an army, and he is coming to judge and to wage war. One of the most fascinating aspects of Christ the first time he came to the planet was that even though he laid himself down to be scourged by human beings, by his own creation, and they plucked out his beard and they punched him in the face and they mocked him and they spit on him and they nailed him to a chunk of wood and even as he was dying on that cross, they still mocked him and made fun of him. And what we read about him is, like a sheep led to the slaughter, he didn't open his mouth. He was reviled, and he did not revile in return. It's amazing the humility of Christ, who was able to say, if I wanted, my father would send legions of angels to come fight for me. That's, right. That's what he told Peter in the garden when Peter took out his sword and tried to defend Christ. He said, put your sword away. If I wanted to be defended right now, trust me, I'd be defended. But what he came for the first time was to lay his life down as a sacrifice, and he didn't even fight back when his own flesh and blood sinful creation mocked him, beat him, scourged him, nailed him. He took all of that, 
because he was the perfect sacrifice. Okay, that's not how he's coming back. He's coming back as the king who conquers. He's coming back as faithful and true, and in his own complete righteousness, he is going to judge the world, and he's going to wage war. Verse 12, and his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. I like that the NASB translated that diadems because the King James, I think, and some of the other translations says many crowns. We sing that song sometimes, crown him with many crowns. But there are a couple of kinds of crowns in Greek culture. There's the crown that a king wears. That's a diadem. There's also a Stephanos, which is the kind of laurel wreath type crown that sometimes victors or anybody who won an Olympic event, they would get to wear that kind of crown. Christ comes back wearing not only a king's crown, but many king's crowns. What does that tell you about him? Well, exactly what is described of him, that he is king of kings. And he has a name written upon him, which no man knows except himself. What an interesting thing for John to write. I don't know why he had to include that little detail, because that makes people like me extra curious. I want to know, okay, what was written? I want to know what the thunder said. I want to know these things we are not told. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. That has to be an exceptionally glorious name. That has to be a conquering name. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. As soon as you read that his name is called the Word of God, that should take you back to the beginning of the Gospel of John. John is the one who explains the Logos to us. John is the one who starts his gospel with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's the Greek word logos. It means intelligence demonstrated through spoken word, through spoken language. So Christ is referred to as the very Word of God incarnate. He doesn't just know the Word of God. He doesn't just speak the Word of God. He is the Word of God. In other words, Everything written within the Bible, which we refer to as the Word of God, all of it is about him. All of it culminates in him. The book of Revelation is the apocalypsis, the uncovering, the revealing of Christ himself. He is the very living embodiment of the Word. And that's what his name is to be called. So look at the titles he has given so far in his return to establish his kingdom. He is called faithful. He's the only one who can truly be called faithful, by the way. Anybody in here think they can compete on the faithfulness level with Christ? No. You better all say no. He is the one who, regardless of the events of human history, remains absolutely 
steadfast to the word that is already spoken. And he comes to the planet to accomplish that word, to fulfill that word. He even said that. He said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish. I've come to fulfill. I've come to satisfy everything that the prophets have spoken. Jesus is the fulfillment and the satisfaction of the entirety of the word of God. He is the faithful one who doesn't veer away from the word of God. And he is the true one. He is the trustworthy one. He's the one that you can trust your ever-living, never-dying soul to. He's the one that you can cast yourself out into eternity knowing that he's got you. Because he's true. He's the one who even said to his apostles, if it weren't so, I would have told you. That's a level of honesty we human beings just don't live at. He is the true one, and he is, in fact, the all-righteous one. And on top of that, he is the very word of God. But when we think of Christ, we most often think of him as in a white robe. We think of him as glowing. We think of him as pure and clean. We, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we got white, pure, clean robes to wear. But his robe is dipped in blood. That's very significant, especially in satisfying Old Testament prophecies about him. Turn to Isaiah 63. And I'm going to start reading right at verse 1. Who is this that comes from Edom? Interesting, by the way. Edom is a city that was established by Esau. Do you know what the name Esau means? Red. And Edom, therefore, also means red. Who is this that comes from the red place? with garments of glowing colors from Bozrah, which means the sheepfold, this one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. The answer is, it is I who speak in righteousness. We just read that he is the righteous one. And on top of that, I am the one who speaks in righteousness, and I am mighty to save. So the question comes to him, why is your apparel red? A moment ago, we read that his garments were glowing with colors, but apparently the chief color on all of the clothing is blood red. Why is your apparel red? And why are your garments like the one who treads in the wine press? We don't, as a rule, many of us, make our own wine anymore. Anybody got a wine press in your backyard? No. What you used to do was take the red grapes, and then you would have to go out and stomp on them. That's why it was called a wine press. You'd go out and stomp on them to get all the juice out of it. And as the grapes would burst, it would splatter on you. And so he's being described here as having blood splattered on him, so much so that when people look at him, the first question they ask is, why are you covered in blood? 
And why is it spattered on you like someone who stomps out grapes? Why is your apparel red? Why are your garments like one who treads in the winepress? His answer in verse 3 is, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, now it's all human beings, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger. And I trampled them in my wrath. And their life blood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment. Okay, why? And when? The next thing that Isaiah tells us identifies when it is that Jesus is going to be so stained with blood, so sprinkled with blood, we know that it's going to happen at a particular moment in time during the day of the Lord, the day of God's vengeance. Verse 4 says, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. Fascinating language. Jesus said to Israelites who were following him, When you see all these things come to pass, when you see all the stuff that's described in Matthew 24, when you see the wars and the rumors of wars and the famine and the pestilence, when you see all the trouble increasing like birth pangs on this planet, he then says, look up. Your redemption's drawing nigh. Your redemption's coming close to you. By the way, that's the redemption of Israel. He's speaking to Israelites when he says it. When you see all these troubles, when you see all this tribulation, when you see the beginning of the birth pangs that are leading to a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, you who have faith in me, look up. I'm coming to redeem. That idea of the day of the Lord, the day of vengeance, and the day of redemption, particularly for Israel, is all the way back here in Isaiah. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. And I looked, and there was no one to help. And I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold me. So my right arm brought salvation to me. What a marvelous phrase. God speaking, Christ being his power, his right arm. God says, through my right arm, through my own authority and power, I brought salvation to me. I did it all. I accomplished my own grace and my own glory. Nobody else gets to take any credit. The redemption and the salvation of people is the direct result of God himself demonstrating his own power. That sounds very New Testament, But that's back here in the book of Isaiah because the Bible only tells one story. Salvation and redemption are God's enterprise. And my right arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me. And I trod down the peoples in my anger and I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. 
Okay, that is a demonstration of the wrath of God that is predicted all the way back in the book of Isaiah that has to be fulfilled, has to be satisfied at some point. It's satisfied during the day of the Lord, during the day of vengeance, during the time of redemption for Israel. What we're reading in Revelation 19 right now is that very moment. And the language is exactly corresponding because Isaiah asks, why are your clothes all red with blood? And then you get to Revelation, and he's coming back, and his robe is like dipped in blood. So you know it's the time of God's vengeance and the time of God's redemption. Go back to Revelation 19. Verse 13, and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on horses. As I pointed out last week, if you look back at verse 8, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride, the church, all those who are blessed to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, they are clothed in fine linen, bright and clean. Now the armies following Christ, are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Same language, because it's the same people group who have already been married to their husband Christ, and now as he is returning, his army comes back with him. That's us. By the way, really interesting detail. This is why I say you got to really pay attention to the details. You will notice that the army the group, the throng that is with him, apparently doesn't have weapons. They're just all riding on horses behind him, apparently just encouraging him, like, yeah, you, you go, you, you get them. We'll be right here behind you. But he, meanwhile, has the only weapons that are spoken of. In verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations exactly what Isaiah said he was going to do. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Same language as in Isaiah. That parallel between treading out a winepress and the pouring out of the wrath of God, causing bloodshed among human beings, That language is identical between the two of them. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is finally accomplishing exactly what he told his apostles he was going to accomplish. When he said, I didn't come to destroy, I didn't come to abolish what the law and the prophets have said. I've come to fulfill it. That's exactly what he's doing. He's fulfilling what the prophets have already said about him. He is accomplishing everything that is written about him in the Old Testament. Here, let me give you another example. You probably all know Psalm 2, but in this context, let's go review it again. Psalm 2, turn back there. This is one of David's greatest messianic psalms. 
predicting what Christ is going to ultimately accomplish and why. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples, the Goyim, the Gentiles, all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, why are they devising stupid things? Okay, that was the gemmerized version. It says vain things, but the word vain just means empty things, pointless things. Can you just off the top of your head think of anything you've seen this week that just seemed pointless to you? There's a whole lot of pointlessness going on in our world. Things that just don't matter at all that people get very upset about and very defensive about and really think are important. They just don't matter. Why then? Why do they do that? Why are the nations in this upheaval against each other? Why are nations attacking nations right now? Trying to take land they're not going to be able to hold on to. Why are the nations in an uproar? Why are the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of this earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Against God and against his Christ. Does that seem true at this moment? That as this world and its leaders and its kings and its politicians are so busy worrying about completely vain, empty, pointless things, the one thing they all seem united about is that whole Christian thing cannot influence the way we think or the way we rule or the laws we make. And in fact, we're going to pass as many laws as we can to try to just suppress this whole Christian thing. And we're going to vote laws into being, boy, there's a terrible sentence, we're going to vote for the laws that actually are contrary to the Bible and Christianity. Should we be able to kill babies? Yes, absolutely. Uh, what's the Bible say? Thou shalt not kill. We don't care. We're going to make a law. We're going to kill babies. Millions of them. What's the Bible say about marriage? One man, one woman. It happened with Adam and Eve, and Jesus validated it. One man, one woman. What about one man and another man? Yeah, let's make a law. That's a good idea. I mean, the laws that are coming out of our very liberal, very crazy world right now run contrary to biblical Christian ideas and ideals, but that's happening on purpose because the prince of the power of the air is working overtime right now, and the rulers of this world all take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed one. And they say things like, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The way that Christianity is so often mischaracterized is that it's just a bunch of rules and regulations. And I like my life, and I like partying, and I like being happy, but if I become a Christian, then I got to be sad, and I got to be droll, and I can't ever do anything that's fun anymore because I'm a Christian. That's the way people think of it, and so they want to cast off the restrictions. They want to cast off the ideas of Christianity. David predicted it all the way back here in the Psalms. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. 
And God, according to verse 4, is so upset about the way human beings are acting that he sits down on his great eternal throne, puts his head in his hands, and says, Oh, woe is me, what am I going to do? I'm glad you laughed. You should have all laughed, because that's not what it says. God don't care. If all the human beings on planet Earth rise up collectively together and shake their fist at him, he does not fall off his throne. God, who sits in the heavens, laughs at them, and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger, and he will terrify them in his fury. Right now, we're sitting in that time period where he's just laughing and scoffing. There's a time coming when the laughing and the scoffing is over, and he's going to exercise his fury and his anger, and he's going to terrify them. And then he's going to say, but as for me, you wouldn't have my son, you wouldn't have my anointed one, but as for me... I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Where is Zion, my holy mountain? Jerusalem. And so, again, this is a direct reference to the Davidic covenant and the fact that a descendant of David is going to sit on David's throne, rule from Jerusalem over the collective 12 tribes of Israel and over all the nations of the earth. And he's going to rule them with a sword out of his mouth and a rod of iron. As for me, I have already done it. I have already installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And I will surely tell of my own decree. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, this is now Christ speaking. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations, the Gentiles, all the kings of the earth. Ask me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And you will break them with a rod of iron. Sound familiar? In Revelation 19, we're told that he comes back and rules the nations with a rod of iron. He is satisfying and fulfilling exactly what David wrote about him. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like pottery, like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, you kings of the earth, you mockers, you who scorned him, you kings, you better start showing some discernment. You better take this warning, judges of the earth, Worship Yahweh, worship the Lord with reverence. It's the word for fear. Not slavish fear, but genuine recognition of who you're dealing with. You're dealing with the God who has all the power, the maker of heaven and earth, the righteous, holy judge of all things and all people. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice before him with trembling. And kiss the son. A minute ago, 
they took counsel amongst themselves against the Lord and his anointed. The advice is, kiss him. The translation in the NASB is, do homage to him. Because that's what it means. It means to get down on your face in front of him, to kiss toward him, to worship him, to recognize the value of Christ. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry, and you, in all of your self-sufficiency, you in all of your supposed strength, you're going to decide for yourself, you're going to throw off his fetters, you're going to cut his cords. The advice here now is, if he becomes angry, you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled, and how blessed are those who take refuge in him. In other words, it's coming. It's going to happen. The wrath of God is going to be poured out. His mighty arm, his son, is going to return to the planet and establish his kingdom. He's going to rule from David's throne, and he's going to crush the nations. He's going to destroy them like a man with an iron rod smashes pottery. That's the image. He's going to come back with his rod of iron and just destroy them. Break him into pieces. In the book of Daniel, we read that he is going to take the kingdoms of the earth and grind them to fine powder until they blow away in the wind. The language is all the same. Christ is going to come back in judgment and in the power of God and in the fury of God and establish his righteous kingdom. And all the people on the planet who don't like that idea, who don't want to give up their own power, who don't want to give up their own authority, all of them collectively can get together and say, no, we won't have it, and God don't care. And God will establish him anyway because all the way back in Psalm 2, God already declared, look, I've decided it. I'm establishing my son on Mount Zion, and you don't get an opinion. I didn't mean to look right at you at that moment, but, but you don't. Back to Revelation 19, verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword. It's really interesting imagery, because what comes from his mouth, he being the word of God, is the very word of God. The writer of the book of Hebrews says the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword that cuts between soul and spirit, the dividing of bone and marrow, that it is so specific that it will cut right through you. Anybody had that experience? I suppose you have. If you're sitting here in church on a Sunday morning when you could be in bed, it's because at some point God got a hold of you and the word of God got a hold of you and it cut right through you and it convinced you that you need a savior. That's what the word of God accomplishes. It's what the word of God does. And it is described as the sword coming out of the mouth of Christ. Now, what John saw was an actual sword coming from his mouth. So that may be talking about the actual wrath and the actual fury and the, the death, the bloodshed that is going to come as Christ returns. But it may also be saying that the same mouth that spoke, let there be, back in Genesis 1, is the same mouth that's going to speak, let there be destruction, let there be bloodshed, let there be the establishing of an everlasting kingdom. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, 
so that with it he may smite, destroy the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we read that eventually every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. The New Testament says we're all going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Okay, are, is everybody willingly going to bow the knee? No. no, some people are going to have to have their knees broken. That's why he has that rod of iron, because he is going to rule nations, and he's not going to do it in a friendly way. He's not going to rule over the rebels, the enemies, the haters of God. He's not going to rule over them by convincing them with a friendly voice that they really ought to come along with him. He's going to destroy nations and break them down with his rod of iron and his almighty power. And he's going to do it all by himself. And he's going to tread out the winepress of God's very fierce wrath. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords, there will be no other kings. He will rule over all the kings of the earth. He will be Lord over all the lords of the earth. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midheaven, come assemble for the great supper of God. Do you realize that's the second supper in this chapter? First, there was the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, you want to be in that. You want to be part of that group. But when Christ comes back and starts busting up nations with his sword out of his mouth and with his rod of iron, there's going to be such a widespread, broad destruction that God calls it a supper for birds as they come and eat the flesh of captains and the flesh of kings and the flesh of mighty men. And there are several references to that that we're going to have to take a look at because Jesus talked about that too. This is no surprise. The language of Revelation 19 is all language that has been foreshadowed. We've already been introduced to it, but there's just not time enough this morning to really dig into that. So that's coming attractions for next week. We're going to combine some of the most well-known supposed rapture verses with Jesus himself saying that he's going to gather the slain to the supper of the Lord. And it's a supper he makes for the birds and the carrion birds and the vultures and those that live off dead things. You either get to be at the living supper or you're going to the dead supper. And if you're going to the dead supper, you're the food. And that's what the Bible says about you. That's what it says. Gee, that was heavy, Jim. <laughs> I'm a little scared now. I'm going to say the same thing to you I always say. Run to Christ. Amen. Be on his side in all things and everything. Because these things that sound so fantastical to us right now are all coming from the exact same prophets and the exact same books and the exact same Christ 
who have already given evidence in time and history of their accuracy. And that means the rest of this has to happen. Run to Christ. If you're found in him and found at the marriage supper of the Lamb, you get to be white-robed, pure and clean. You get to wear the righteousness that is given to you from God. And you get to live eternally, not only in his kingdom, you get to be part of the new Jerusalem. And if you don't run to him, if you rebel against him, if you continue in your stubbornness, if you continue to say, I will not have him rule over me, you are bird food. And that's the picture. Run to Christ. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.